Hello, I'm Sharon Krauss, and this is Preternatural Investigations, a podcast about things that are strange, but not too strange. The marvellous things that lie between the mundane and the miraculous. I'm a musician with a background in academic philosophy, a rationalist who believes there is magic, mystery and meaning to be found in the world around us. My title nods towards Ludwig Wittgenstein, and my approach owes something to William James's inquiries into religious experience and Mark Fisher's explorations of the weird and the eerie. Come with me into the realm of the preternatural. Episode 2 The Magic of Place. summer days to enjoy the natural beauty and visit some friends. As I drive up the Elan Valley and then along the mountain road to Aberystwyth, something changes. I'm no longer just enjoying a scenic drive. There's a sense of stillness and a shiver running up my spine. My driving slows and at the first opportunity I park the car and get out. My senses are awakening. The place is suddenly more alive and I'm being drawn in like a storybook explorer who finds her way into the realm of fairy. Everything seems to move in slow motion and I feel as if I've stepped outside of normal time. Space is skewed too. Sounds like birdsong can seem both far away and crystal clear. There's something here that affects me so strongly that I determine to find a way to move to the area. Perhaps you've had experiences of this kind on walking into the middle of a stone circle or on finding an ivy-covered gateway in a city wall that conceals a hidden garden. Maybe you felt something like this while walking through an old village churchyard with dark and twisted yew trees, or seeing the moon reflected in the still surface of a lake. Some places awake our senses, stimulate our imagination, and lure us in. They seem like portals into a different, reality.
How do we find ourselves stepping into this kind of super-reality? Can anyone experience it? What do these experiences mean? What do they give us? Are they just illusions? Or is there something real here? Can we experience the magic of place anywhere? Or are some places magical in this way and others not? By reflecting on my experiences in Mid Wales, I aim to shed some light on this kind of experience and also on the nature of reality as we perceive it. There are a number of factors that fed into my profound, rich and moving experience. I had a personal history with the place that coloured my experience and overlaid it with vivid memories. And as a lover of myths and children's magical literature, I couldn't help feeling excited about being in the land of the Mabinogion, Alan Garner's The Owl Service and Susan Cooper's The Grey King. Then there's the lyrical and poetic nature of the Welsh language and the Welsh literary tradition. Evocative place names and hints of history and story at every turn. These things, together with the stunning natural beauty, meant that I was primed and ready to have a magical experience. My first encounter with Mid Wales was as a student at Aberystwyth University more than 20 years ago. It was a time of discovery for me. I met people who introduced me to a world of strange and exciting music 
and psychedelic drugs. I was given access to a well-stocked academic library and I promptly immersed myself in philosophy, mythological and occult texts. I was far enough from my parental home to feel free and independent, out on my own in the wide world. On weekends, my boyfriend would come to visit and we'd ride out on his motorbike along the winding mountain roads, taking in dramatic hillscapes and babbling streams. We'd stop to explore woodlands or to clamber around in ruined mineworks, and we'd end up in the Elan Valley. Coming upon its huge expanses of still clear water and the fairy tale turreted dams was a surprise and a wonder to me. I was at an impressionable age, and it was natural that this place would affect me strongly, appearing in my dreams and becoming my fantasy of paradise. Having this kind of personal history with a place gives it a charge and adds richness. An extra layer, if you like, to your experiences there. When you return after many years, there's a deep sense of familiarity and rightness, combined with the strangeness that comes with having been away for so long. You're seeing the place with new eyes, but the old memories lie behind the new perceptions like a double exposure, giving the experience a dreamlike quality. Wales is a place rich in history, myth and poetry. In the stories of the Mabinogion and in other Welsh legends and tales, there are places where magic happens. Sit on Gorseth Arberth, the mound of Arberth, and you'll receive a wound or see a wonder. Sleep on the slopes of Cader Idris and you'll awake a madman or a poet. There are places linked to historical or mythical figures or events. Beth Taliesin, the grave of the poet Taliesin. Carn Mark Arthur, which is said to bear the imprint of King Arthur's horse's hoof. Owen Glyndwr's way, and so on. Walking in these places is to be walking in a storyscape. Almost all Welsh place names are descriptive. There's Llynbarfog, the bearded lake, Cadair Idris, Idris's seat. Names that prick your curiosity before you even see them. How can a lake be bearded? Who is Idris? When you find out the story behind it, the name becomes shorthand for the story. It evokes it. Compare these with names like Bognor Regis, Scunthorpe, and Chipping Sodbury, any of which might have interesting etymologies or histories, but whose meanings are not apparent. The 
common Welsh words used to name places, such as coombe, from which the English coombe derives, have an evocative power, perhaps just due to being such old-sounding words. Modern Welsh is much closer to Old Welsh than modern English is to Old English. Walking through a landscape thus named, you can't help but feel you're walking in an ancient land. And as well as the ancient tales, there are more recent stories which draw on them, like Alan Garner's The Owl Service, which reworks the Blodeuwedd story from the Mabinogion in a 20th century Welsh setting, and Susan Cooper's The Dark is Rising books. At the beginning of The Grey King, Cooper writes, although all the characters in this book are fictitious, the places are real, adding, the Brennan fluid, Grey King, I did not invent. The way that Cooper's fictional characters inhabit real places and interact with the characters of legend blends fact and fiction seamlessly and adds a powerful layer of magic. The Grey King lurks in the mountain mists, waiting to seize travellers who get lost. King Arthur and the sleeping knights lie waiting to be awoken at a time of great need. Landscape plays a poetic role in Welsh culture and literary tradition. More than any other I've encountered, Welsh poetry is rooted in the land and draws on its magic and beauty. In Wales, unlike in England and other places I've spent time, poetry is pervasive, a part of everyday life. Most English poets are academics, and most English people don't read poetry let alone recite it. Wales's strongest poets come from farming backgrounds, and poetry is not seen as an academic activity, but is grounded in everyday life, especially in rural life. There's a high-profile poetry competition each year at the National Eisteddfod, at which a poet is crowned and awarded the Bardic Chair. The Millennium Centre in Cardiff is inscribed with words written by Gwyneth Lewis, one of Wales's national poets. It is primarily poets who speak for Wales, not politicians, celebrities or the media. The poetic mindset is not an affectation, but a natural form of expression when you live in a place so wild, raw and beautiful. All of this is highly conducive to being receptive to the magic of the place.
Since I first went to Aberystwyth all that time ago, I've spent much of my time playing, writing and recording music. This has trained me to turn whatever I see, hear, think or feel into sound. To respond musically to both the world around me and my inner world. Now, as I drive along the familiar old roads, walk in the valleys, I hear music bubbling up. The landscape is full to bursting with it. I know that if I spend time here, I'll draw it out, give birth to it. So that is what I do. Within months of that visit, I pack up my essentials and move, first to a house two miles up a steep winding track near Beth Taliesin, and with a view of Kadar Idris. Then, to an old vicarage next to a church enclosed within an ancient stone circle. Once there, I spend time walking and driving around, exploring by day and night, alone and with others. The land around me seems alive with music and with stories. I sit quietly and strain my inner ear to hear. I want to draw these mysteries out, unlock this enchanted world. On my walks, I record the birds, the streams and waterfalls, the wind and rain, and the jet planes that slice through the quiet. I listen and absorb as much as possible, and then go home and try to turn what I've experienced and recorded into music. Creating this music is a rewarding project, and it adds another layer to my experience of the place. And maybe the people who hear it will feel curious and want to experience the magic of the place for themselves. If so, I'll be immensely happy to be part of this process of enchantment, to add another link to the chain. When we spend time in places with which we have a wealth of personal connections, or when a place is poetic, mythic and ancient to us, we experience it as having a deep richness and complexity. Our experiences of such places are multi-layered, and the more of these harmonious layers that we experience, the richer the experience becomes.
But is this enough to make it truly magical? Perhaps I've left out the most important factor, the actual magic, holiness or spiritual nature of the place. Aren't the places where we experience this power and magic holy or haunted, inhabited by spirits or the loci of some kind of energy or force? Joseph Campbell talks about what happens to the landscape for cultures still nurtured in mythology. It is, he says, made alive with symbolic suggestion. The hills and groves have their supernatural protectors and are associated with popularly known episodes in the local history of the creation of the world. Here and there, furthermore, are special shrines Wherever a hero has been born, has wrought, or has passed back into the void, the place is marked and sanctified. He adds that these places can serve as a support for fruitful meditation. I think what Campbell is describing is true of our cultures too. Though our shrines and places of pilgrimage may not be religious, they may be personal and idiosyncratic literary, historical, sporting, or artistic. If we make a pilgrimage to Avebury to celebrate the summer solstice, we'll be fulfilling the kind of pilgrimage that Campbell talks about. If we make a pilgrimage to Whitby to immerse ourselves in the mysteriousness of the place where Dracula first appeared, we'll be doing the same thing, but without the spiritual component. Having made both of these pilgrimages, and many more, I can see no real experiential difference between them. Even in places deemed to be inherently holy, magical or haunted, it seems to be the stories we tell about them that do the real work of weaving the spell. Whatever qualities a place initially has, and I'm not denying that some places may be inherently more inspiring, magical or holy than others. Once it becomes identified as a place for reflection, meditation, prayer and contemplation, people will go there specifically for those things. And when people spend time reflecting, meditating and being open to a place, it's highly likely that they'll find inspiration and gain a sense of well-being. That's what meditation and contemplation bring. Similarly, if a place comes to be seen as haunted, people will go there hoping to be spooked, and often they will be. Whatever magic a place has to start with, the really interesting thing seems to be the process that results in that magic deepening over time as a result of this creative layering. If there is something fascinating that draws people to a place, either its natural beauty, its holiness, its history, or something iconic or arresting, then people come, are inspired by it, and create stories and poems that become rooted there and add to its mythology. They paint it, take photos, write poems, create music, 
and tell stories, which in turn draw other people in. The process snowballs and the place becomes charged and enriched. The result is a sort of shared enhancement of reality. This process of layering, of grafting new layers onto reality, is a version of what I was talking about in the previous episode. Our ability to augment and transcend nature, to make things that become second nature. This augmented super-reality is the preternatural realm, and it's our natural habitat. Our lived realities are composed of more than just atoms and molecules, planets and stars, brains and bodies, stone, wood, water and air. The extra ingredients, or layers as I've been calling them, are the result of an interplay, conversation or collaboration between the place and our imagination. The music I made as a result of listening to the places I explored and which forms the soundtrack to this episode, like the myths and stories that have come to be associated with those places, is a response to those places and grew organically out of them. If I did my job well, there's something of the nature of those places captured in and conveyed by the music. This might seem too wide a definition of reality to some. If our experiences occur as the result of the interplay between reality and imagination, what makes them experiences of reality and not just illusions or flights of fancy? Let me just say here that just as in horticulture, it's not possible to graft any plant onto another and successfully grow it. There are constraints on what we can and cannot successfully graft onto reality. And perhaps the idea of places having the kind of magic I've been talking about will seem more plausible if we consider an example of a place with a far more sinister kind of magic. As well as places that are inspiring and uplifting, there are those with menacing atmospheres Places with horrific pasts that become the loci of chilling stories. One vivid example is Auschwitz, where most people sense a palpable evil from the moment they walk underneath the black metal archway inscribed with Arbeit macht frei. There's a horror that affects all but the most insensitive of people. From the rooms piled high with suitcases, shoes and spectacles, past the mounds of human hair used to stuff furniture cushions, to surgeries where barbaric operations were carried out. This place tells its own stories, the kind to give you nightmares. 
The horror that these things evoke is part of the reality that is Auschwitz, as real as the bricks and mortar of the prison cells and gas chambers. The fact that we must exercise our empathy and imagination to feel this doesn't make it any less real. On the contrary, what this shows is that there's more to the reality of a place than its bricks and mortar. The buildings of Auschwitz are not just buildings, they are buildings of extermination. We discover this fact only by opening our eyes and exerting our imaginative powers. What we experience in the places that move us is similar, but usually less palpable. When we employ our imagination to feel the magic of a place, we latch on to something real, which is why the stories associated with a place have a power and a kind of truth. We're not experiencing delusions or hallucinations. We're responding to something and drawing it out just as an archaeologist pieces together an understanding of the history of a place. A lot of the time, it makes sense for us to imagine ourselves as separate from the world, as individuals interacting with other individuals, choosing when and how to respond to what happens around us. In the kind of experience I've been looking at, this separation is lessened and we engage with a place in a deeper, more immersive way than normal. We feel invigorated and connected and gain a sense of meaning and contentment. The world seems fully alive and so do we.
At times like this, it feels as though a crack has opened up in everyday reality and something has been revealed to us. At the same time, we feel ourselves unlocking. We cannot enter a portal onto magical reality without being changed. In receiving gifts from the outer realm, we seem to automatically receive inner gifts or insights. Noticing this leads to the realization that the openness needed to discover and respond to the deeper reality a place can reveal is the same openness required to plumb our own depths. I'm Sharon Krauss, and this has been Preternatural Investigations.